<laughs> at some point we should get it that yeah it'd so be a Brian just starts recording and we don't know he has. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we'll say we'll edit that out, but he won't. Um, <clears throat> Hello, Joe. <laughs> What's up with your big bad self? <laughs> Maybe that's uh, too too much. How was uh, how was the cruise, Joe? It was fantastic. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, glad you glad you're back. Are you feeling a bit seasick or or not really? It's either seasick or a little bit hungover still. I don't know, one or the other. It's hard to work out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, in that. sometimes. Fair enough. G'day, Dominic Barfield here, and this is the RBC Clinical Podcast. Thank you for listening, and thank you for subscribing on your smartphone or generic fruit-based device. Uh, really grateful for you taking the time to download and listen to this RBC podcast, and we don't ask much in return. They'd be incredibly grateful if you could pop down a podcast or ACAST and leave us a review. Um, obviously, a five-star review would be great, um, but we'd uh, really appreciate a couple of minutes of your time if you could do that for us, please. So today, joining Brian and myself in the studio, we have the wonderful uh, Joe Fenn, one of our fabulous lecturers in neurology and neurosurgery here at the RVC. Um, thank you, Jay, for uh, for coming back on. I'm glad you had a good time on your on your cruise. And uh, hello to Jason. Indeed. So what we thought we we're going to talk about would be inflammatory CNS diseases. And I know that's uh, quite a, um, a smorgasbord of, of, uh, of inflammatory uh, um, diseases that are going on. So, so I, I suppose maybe the um, maybe the first thing are we, are we talk, mainly talking about dogs or cats in in that regard yeah so typically i guess we're talking about dogs here um yeah you're right it's quite a sort of complex of different types of diseases and i guess when we think about inflammatory diseases overall in general in medicine in veterinary medicine i guess we're talking about really a combination of infectious diseases and immune mediated inflammatory diseases and really here probably what we're going to focus on is maybe more the immune mediated brain diseases or spinal cord or any part of the cns that could be affected and um, the reason that's quite a sort of useful topic to discuss i guess is that there are so many different diseases now that get lumped into this category into this sort of catch-all term that is inflammatory cns disease and so inflammatory cns disease itself when we say that word really what we're probably talking about is a group of diseases that come under this umbrella term say meningoencephalitis of unknown origin which comes as muo um also has a few other acronyms thrown at it mua mue and so traditionally was called meningoencephalitis of unknown etiology which would be mua over here but then that's mue in the states so some people came up with a great idea of maybe getting rid of that term, just saying meningoencephalitis from known origin to make it MUO. So it's a little bit more straightforward. But now we have three acronyms basically for the same sort of catch-all term. And effectively, yeah, we're looking at a group of immune-mediated diseases that we see quite a lot, I guess, in this country. And uh, so if we have a patient where we know they've got a disease affecting their central nervous system and the indications we're getting are that it's inflammatory, most likely in this country that it's going to be immune mediated because um, we don't have a lot of cns infections we see very much and in that immune mediated bracket there are a few different disorders that we see from time to time and they all tend to get lumped into this umbrella term that is muo so what are the what are the patients that we or that you tend to see with, with these collection of diseases or, or they're actually different patient populations that you see yeah so we tend to think about a relatively, um, I guess, common sort of presentation as being a small breed dog. 
Um, so typically, I guess most of these conditions will affect more often younger small breed dogs. There may be a predisposition to, to female small young breed dogs. Um, but more and more we are seeing that we can see inflammatory CNS disease, so immune-mediated diseases in any breed of dog actually now. So, um, yeah, there's a few publications that have come out suggesting that we can see conditions that we traditionally thought were only seen in a few different breeds, such as the necrotizing forms of meningoencephalitis, actually in large breed dogs as well. So they are a group of diseases that we need to be aware of for basically all breeds of dogs. But typically what we're looking at here is going to be a young to middle-aged dog, maybe more likely to be a small breed, maybe more likely to be female, that presents with, I guess when we think about using our five-finger rule, presents with a acute onset of progressive, potentially asymmetrical and potentially painful clinical signs that we can localise to somewhere in the central nervous system. I guess most often that is going to be the brain, but we do get spinal cases as well. So, um, yeah, typically that's what we're looking at. Typically relatively young, progressive, acute onset of signs that may be painful, may be lateralised. And sometimes it might be in one of these breeds that really gives us like a red flag, such as a Chihuahua, Maltese Terrier, French Bulldog, for example. And I know it's probably quite difficult to answer this question, but is there... Um a number of these patients that you reckon people are treating in practice without sort of referring in or having any further sort of diagnostics or people doing CSF taps or is that just really a hard thing to work out like what are what are people happy to do in managing I suppose these suspected patients yeah I guess that's a good question I think probably there are a lot more cases out there than we actually see and there's probably quite a few of these cases that do because of limited funds and I guess some owners aren't going to want to go with sort of invasive diagnostic tests such as CSF tap, um, GA for MRI scan or even just to be referred. Um, so there are certainly going to be situations in which potentially that we speak to uh, vets in primary practice and discuss with them when they've got that typical presentation that is really suggestive for inflammatory CNS disease. Given the fact that we don't see a lot of, say, infectious CNS diseases in this country and the fact that we could exclude a few of them just by, I guess, lack of travel history and potentially knowing that they're vaccinated against distemper, for example, and potentially doing serology to rule out things like neospora and toxoplasma, which are the only real sort of infectious CNS diseases that we see that commonly um, in this country. If we can kind of exclude those then often we might have the opportunity to discuss with people just starting treatment and so we can guide people through that process, guide vets through that process of, of treating for a presumptive diagnosis of a dog having this sort of MUO complex of diseases. Obviously it's kind of suboptimal if we have to go down that route because it could be masquerading as something else, you know. We definitely have other things on our differential list with that presentation. So you could be missing, for example, a, a neoplasia or I guess a vascular event for example in the worst case scenario missing an infection because obviously the treatment the mainstay is going to be immunosuppression because these are immune mediated diseases and if we miss that there's an infection there that we could have diagnosed more accurately then then that's a big risk 
So with that, is there a difference in the geography of, of neurologists or, or these conditions where, where actually there's a higher percentage, higher percentage of, of infectious cases than they would have like MUOs? Yeah, yeah, I guess um, particularly, you know, countries with quite a, I guess, boring climate like us, we don't really have so many of the fungal diseases or um, I guess the more common CNS diseases that we see in other countries like in the US, for example, I think they see a lot more fungal meningoencephalitis cases. So that's a much bigger differential for them and particularly, I guess, in probably in the warmer parts of Europe as well. Um, a few more of these infectious diseases that can give you that similar presentation. Um, in the UK, really, when we think about infectious causes for meningoencephalitis, if it's not got a travel history and we don't have, say, a history of living on a farm, which makes protozoal diseases like Neospora toxoplasma more likely, really what we're thinking about there more often is going to be things like a, an empyema, um, so resulting from some kind of bite wound or trauma and some kind of penetrating injury. So in that case, that's that's likely to be something that we've got a reasonable suspicion of before we even go down the diagnostic pathway, because you're likely then to be looking at a patient that's either been witnessed to have been attacked by another animal or to have a bite wound over the side of its head, for example, or to be very pyrexic with yeah some kind of discharge coming from somewhere. Um, so you're kind of going to know that you're heading towards an infectious diagnosis in the UK typically um, before you go down most of the, I guess, the diagnostic tests. So, yeah, geographical differences do play a part. And with, and with the diagnostic tests, Joe, do you, um, do, you, do you still quite often, like rule out those um, potentially infectious diseases that we, we might see here, so neospora and toxoplasmosis is... And, and other other things? Is it more of a diagnosis of exclusion or are there certain pathognomonic things that you find? Yeah, it is, it is kind of a diagnosis of exclusion. I guess um, we will tend to exclude those feasible um, infectious causes. Um, so that would be in the UK potentially distemper, but yes, you would have to have a travel history really for that to be likely. Um, Neospora and toxoplasma, you're probably going to have some kind of clue on the history again we will try and exclude those but um i guess if we do have the option of performing advanced diagnostics such as an mri scan and csf tap we're probably going to do those regardless and those are going to give us the biggest clue anyway as to whether those things are more likely and we can use things like the csf to really allow us to exclude those infections a bit a bit more thoroughly. And so what the, the CSF, what, what does it normally actually look like in these MUOs? So, yeah, we typically, we're going to see inflammation. Um, but I guess that when we're thinking about MUO, the sort of telltale is that the inflammatory cells there are going to be what we call like a mononuclear population. So monocytes and lymphocytes, which effectively is what makes it a bit tricky is that's kind of what we'll see similarly for a reaction to viruses sometimes, so something like distemper. So it doesn't completely exclude a viral um, infection, but um, that's the characteristic CSF population we do see, which is different to what you would expect for, say, a bacterial infection, because similar to other parts of the body, bacterial infection will probably initiate a neutrophil response. So we typically see, if we saw a lot of neutrophils in the CSF tap from one of these patients, then then we would certainly be um, thinking of diagnosis other than MUO. 
and, and when you um, MRI them, is there, are there certain classical appearances as well of these inflammatory conditions? To an extent, um, yes, we tend to see, I guess, multifocal lesions, because that's kind of one of the characteristics of inflammatory diseases in general, that they can be a little bit multifocal, a little bit asymmetrical. And so that would sort of distinguish it from, say, for example, most neoplasias, where you're going to have one discrete solitary lesion, or most vascular diseases. So like a stroke, we would expect to have one solitary, well-demarcated lesion. It might be multiple, but they're still going to be very demarcated, and you're not going to have a lot of mass effects. Whereas with an inflammatory disease, we'll often see sort of diffuse swelling, and we can see different types of distribution of lesions, depending on which particular immune-mediated form of MUO they have. So there is a variation among the sort of histological diagnosis that you reach, but that's kind of an academic distinction so effectively yeah there are some telltale imaging findings but effectively what you're looking for are the general features of an inflammatory disease which is going to be patchy multifocal changes which are a bit asymmetrical inflammatory csf to support that suspicion that you've got inflammation in the brain going on effectively or the spinal cord if that's where we're looking and then just a lack of infectious causes so if you've got that combination of imaging and csf findings that suggest there's inflammation going on and you can't find an infection and the cells are mainly mononuclear then you're going to plump towards this MUO label. And so once you've got that uh, diagnosis as it, as it were what what do you um, how, how do you tell the the client sort of I suppose what's in store for them like as in prognosis or does prognosis very much dependent on breed aspects and how they respond to therapy? Yeah, it's, um, it is a difficult one um, because I guess traditionally we've thought of these cases as having quite a guarded prognosis um, and um, I guess there are some sort of differences among breeds and particularly among the sort of histological diagnosis that we've got because when we think about MUO, we could even subdivide that sort of group of diseases even further and say that sometimes we have ones which we think have more of a necrotizing nature, so they're called the necrotizing encephalitis, and some where they have more of a granulomatous reaction, so that's your GME, which might be a sort of familiar term to some people, and that GME category overall tends to be one where we associate with a bit of a better prognosis. They're often have the disease develop a little bit later in life, so it might be young to middle age, and actually respond relatively well to a treatment with immunosuppressives. Whereas we worry a bit more about the necrotizing cases, and I think as the name suggests, then potentially it's a more severe damage to the brain, so certain areas that have necrosed, probably less likely to respond to treatment. So there is some concern, and there are some imaging features that we can use, or breed features that make us worry more about the necrotizing cases and we might therefore say to an owner we're a little bit less certain about the outcome here we're a little bit less certain about how long we're going to have a response to treatment for but overall i think the most important prognostic factor is like you say their initial response to treatment so i think um various people have looked at trying to find prognostic factors for these cases and really over overwhelmingly what comes out is that it depends on how they respond to treatment in that initial phase because really the time they're at risk of of dying from this sort of disease is in those first few days the first week or so 
So what we tend to say is if we treat them really aggressively, once we're confident of diagnosis with um, immunosuppressives, then if they get through that initial period, then there's no reason why they can't go on and have a, a very good quality of life, which is important because they can look so severe when they present and it can be so worrying for the owner and for referring vets when they see a patient. And it's, it's a common theme throughout neurology, I guess, of how severe they can look in their initial presentation with a lot of brain diseases, for example. But actually, depending on their diagnosis underlying it, they can have a, a really good prognosis. And that is certainly the case with the MUA dogs. If they can survive that first sort of week or so, we often have cases coming back in for several years down the line, you know, depending on what treatment they're on. So what what are the, the treatments? So you talk about immunosuppressives, but what are the particular immunosuppressives that you, you, you concentrate on using with these guys? So, yeah, so the mainstay is going to be corticosteroids, as with all um, immune-mediated diseases, really. Um, so we typically start them on a, yeah immunosuppressive dose of um, dexamethasone if we're given an IV or prednisolone orally. And um, we would typically... Yeah, give them, say, an equivalent of a Fort McPicay-Pred dose for a couple of days, drop that down, give them a couple of weeks of 2 McPicay, total daily dose, and then just really gradually taper that off. And that that's kind of the mainstay for treatment for these cases. But I guess what we have sort of figured out over the years um, with some of the research that's been done into these cases and just through our experience is that they tend to benefit from adding an adjunctive immunosuppressive to that. So not just being on the steroids. You can treat an MUO case effectively just with corticosteroids. That's definitely possible. But um, because they have to be on quite high doses, obviously we know that they'll get a lot of side effects just from being on corticosteroids for quite a long period of time. So particularly these dogs tend to develop quite a lot of, I guess they're going to lose their hair, thin skin, pot belly, urinating a lot wanting to drink lots getting quite fat and um, that can be a problem particularly with these very small dogs so um, I guess what's ideal is to be able to get them off the steroids a bit quicker if we can and if we use something added on so probably the most common example of what we use is is cytarabine so cytosine arabinicide and that is actually quite a, a useful way of just allowing us to back off the bread dose a bit quicker so if we start them on that alongside the steroids at the at the start that's an injection that we give um four times over a 48 hour period sort of 12 hours apart and then we can give that every three weeks whilst tapering off the steroid dose a bit quicker it does seem like that's beneficial both in terms of hopefully giving us a longer time of remission and it seems like survival times generally are longer it's a bit difficult to compare between sort of studies but it does seem like survival times are longer if you add something to the prednisolone um, and also that you're hopefully able to get less in the way of side effects because particularly cytarabine has very few in the way of sort of noticeable adverse effects. So is that why it's easy? I suppose I didn't think about before I know that steroids are the, are the cornerstone of immunosuppressive therapy but is there a reason why cytarabine was used rather than, I suppose, like cyclosporin or mycophenolate or, 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 or something else? Yeah, I guess one of the big benefits for cytarabine is, is, is really 
really effective at penetrating the blood-brain barrier. So for our cases, that's obviously really useful. I mean, you can argue in a lot of inflammatory brain diseases that might not be an issue because the blood-brain barrier might not be intact anyway. Um, but that, that nonetheless, that's quite an attractive aspect of cytarabine. I guess as well, it um, does have a particular mechanism of action that is useful in terms of the mainly lymphocytic population of inflammation that we see with um, MUO. So that's quite a useful feature of it. And for us, it's just, it, it is, there, there are a number of other adjunctive meds you could use. It's the one that we're most familiar with, basically. Um, we've had reasonable success with it. And when you look at the literature, it performs pretty much the same as most other options, yet it's just an injection every three weeks. And we feel like we're quite familiar with that. Um, and the adverse effects seem to be really low and cost-wise it's kind of comparable because I guess yeah cyclosporine would be like you say another option um, and that doesn't involve injections which is good so it's just a tablet but then it does have to be given every day um, adverse effects I guess yeah still relatively low side effect profile uh, but cost-wise it's quite an expensive drug generally so they do work out roughly similar. So that's probably the next one we would go to in some cases if owners aren't able to come back in every three weeks, for example, to their vets or to us to have that cytarabine done, then yeah, cyclosporine would definitely be another option. Effectively, you're just looking for a adjunctive immunosuppressive that has fewer side effects than, than the steroids and ideally that targets more lymphocytic. So anecdotally, do you, do you think that, uh, um, I, I know that we use cytarabins here, but do you know like other centres are more predominant to use cyclosporine or, or cytarabine? Is, is it actually quite regionally, well not regionally yeah. based, but based on people's experiences yeah. or, and what they think they can do? Yeah. Or Yeah, and I think it is one of those things where when people say there are a lot of different sort of treatment options for one thing, then that probably means that not one of them is absolutely perfect, right? So I think it really does come down to, yeah, what people's experiences have been. I think on the whole in the UK, probably most referral centres probably more lean towards cytarabine for adjunctive treatment, but definitely a reasonable number will use cyclosporine as well. I certainly know some will use other adjunctive treatments, so mycophenolate, for example, um, certainly a lot probably a bit more interest in that recently so there's a bit less sort of data out there um, or information but maybe that will become you know more treatment of choice over time some places will use azathioprine for example um, but then I think my concern there is a little bit more risk of adverse effects you have to be a little bit more careful with that and also the time taken for that for azathioprine to have its beneficial effect is probably a bit of a downside. And so when these uh, um, dogs are run uh, on, on treatment, do they, um, and obviously ho hopefully they, they respond, I suppose that's, a, that's the first thing, but if they do, normally things are, are quite good. So how, how do things progress thereafter, Joe? Like can they, can they relapse or do they, like how does that disease sort of progress? Yeah, so I guess I, I tend to say to owners that I, I think we're effectively trying to get them into a remission and it's not necessarily the case that we're going to completely cure the condition. It's very realistic chance of um, them suffering a relapse and we don't know to be honest depending on which treatment option you're going with how likely that is 
do they all relapse at some point or is it just only a few and I think we don't really fully know the answer to that question there's definitely a reasonable chance of of a relapse at some point down the line and what we know is that's probably higher risk if you come off the treatment too quickly and um, we will try and get patients off certainly off the steroids within that first year definitely um, but then they will probably stay on that adjunctive treatment for a reasonable period and we hope that we can get them neurologically normal in that time as well but obviously as with the nervous system in general CNS doesn't repair itself that well so um, even if we get on top of the inflammatory disease then they might retain some deficits on their neuro exam and that's not something that we panic about it's just something that we have to monitor to know that if we're picking up a change so yeah the first signs of a relapse would probably be a change in their neuro exam and you'd be looking for them to develop signs that were potentially similar to what they developed first because if they do then yeah you're probably relatively safe to assume that it's a recurrence and we often will then if we do get suspicious of a relapse we'll often just increase their dose back to their starting dose as opposed to repeating investigations for example i guess it depends a bit on the, the signs they're showing if they show signs that suggest a completely different part of their central nervous system being involved is why our neuroexam is so important i guess if they show that their signs are moved somewhere else then yes it's possible that the inflammatory disease has just shifted somewhere else in the cns but also yeah i guess we have to worry about there being you know developing a new other disease so those are probably cases where we would offer to the owner to repeat investigations potentially but if you're in a situation where you don't have that option then we and we've definitely been in that situation quite a lot then we will just reinstitute that top dose of the steroids and then just start the tapering process again so that does happen um, relatively frequently it's just uh, trying to stretch out the length of time before that happens. Fair, fair enough. And um, and see, with with the uh, the, the necrotizing ones, it, is it just that you expect them not to respond as well, or the disease is going to remain static, and so they're not going to get you know, the same yeah. neurological return? I think, in truth, we don't really know. Um, just that probably some of the relatively old sort of literature now with regards to um, prognosis and these guys potentially being a bit worse but they're probably more likely to develop things like seizures um, which are potentially a negative prognostic factor because we know that the necrotizing lesions tend to affect the forebrain itself a bit more um, that's potentially why they might cause seizures and that may make them a bit more complicated to manage um, but also, yeah, I think that they tend to fall into the concern that we might lose them early as opposed to them having a sort of longer, ongoing, more challenging condition to manage. I think they're both possible. Um, but, yeah, we do have a worry with those cases, potentially, that they might be a bit more likely to be the ones that we can't get through that that first week sort of period. We just have to treat them very aggressively, I guess. And and why um, do you think that say cats don't have the the sort of collection of, of diseases or do do other do other species mm. that we deal with as vets have, have these uh, diseases or we don't don't know so much? Yeah, as far as far as we're aware, 
cats probably do have some form of immune-mediated inflammatory CNS disease. Um, it's just not been quite as well characterised as it has in dogs. So difficulty is that probably a lot of the time we diagnose um, a unknown inflammatory disease in a cat and we just don't get a histological diagnosis on it so it probably is out there that they have something relatively similar and there are certainly lots of reports of of cats developing what looks like an inflammatory brain disease but they're not being an infection found it's just traditionally sort of believed they're accepted that um, cats are more likely to have an infectious cause for um, an inflammatory CNS disease such as things like FIP for example which would be the most common inflammatory CNS disease we'd, we'd see in cats then obviously sometimes toxoplasma although that's something that I think is a little bit more something you see in textbooks in terms of actually seeing it in, in real life but yeah toxoplasma is a possibility um, so yeah cats I think that we do depending on their signalment, worry a bit more about things like FIP, for example, or an empyema if they've been in a fight with another cat, as opposed to the immune-mediated diseases, which we think we see more commonly in dogs. And in terms of sort of large animals, farm animals, then I think just by nature of their sort of, I guess their lifestyle, for example, we, we do more often um, worry about infectious diseases in those guys so things like listeria or other roots of infection um, that seem to be a little bit more common in large animals so yeah we don't really have a that much of a recognition of immune mediated brain disease in, in those guys and so you said as well at the at the start if i'm if i'm um, correct that, that this can inflammatory conditions happen in the spinal cord as as well so do you a do you treat them the same way and is there are they pretty much similar in their prognosis or the prognostic variables yeah i guess effectively we would just treat them as relatively similar with the spinal only versions and it it, it they probably fall into the category that so when we were talking about muo being either sort of a granulomatous your gme or these necrotizing guys which we can call nme and nle so the spinal cases probably fall into that GME category, um, which is the sort of hopefully a better prognosis category. Um, so I think as with all sort of spinal cord conditions, their prognosis is going to depend to an extent on how severely affected they are. So if you had a patient came in that has a reasonable degree of function in whichever limbs are below that lesion, then yeah we would anticipate that they have a good prognosis and we can treat them in the same way basically so yeah it's just probably the same lesion that in a gme can occur in either the brain stem forebrain or even the optic nerves or the spinal cord in gme and if it does wherever it occurs we tend to treat them pretty much the same so again it would be the steroids and um an adjunctive immunosuppressive and if you have, so, so like, is it right, the pugs have been associated with more of the necrotizing uh, um, inflammatory conditions. Are, if there are breed susceptibilities, is, is there likely idea that there's a genetic component to it? And are, yeah. are people looking into that? Yeah, so there have been some investigations into that and there do seem to be some genetic 
mutations that people have found that may be associated with a risk in pugs, for example. Um, the difficulty is that it's probably a relatively multifactorial disease process anyway, um, with a lot of inflammatory diseases, even if there is a gene involved that makes them maybe susceptible to it. Um, the theory is that there must be some kind of immune stimulus involved. So, yeah, we don't really fully understand the etiology of these guys. And um, there have been various studies looking into trying to identify what the immune trigger is, but no one's really settled on one. And therefore, it is probably likely that it's a combination of some kind of genetic predisposition combined with the right cocktail of other external and internal events that combine to you know, provide the right immune stimulus at the right time such that they develop this inflammatory brain disease wow. um and and i suppose have, have uh have viruses always been sort of looked at uh, as as well in the yeah. pathology of of the sort of to say that that's completely rule, ruled out yeah so yeah i mean various studies have looked at trying to identify a combination of pathogens including viruses um, in animals that have developed say MUO or these inflammatory brain diseases and no one's really been able to repeatedly find the same group of you know, pathogens involved or present in dogs at the time so I think as far as we're aware then um, there's not been a consistent pathogen involved in this but um, yeah, as to whether there is, say, a, a virus that yeah we haven't yet identified lurking in in these dogs, then, then it's difficult to say for sure. Fair enough. Um, Ted, do you think we've uh, missed anything out about uh, talking about these uh, one well, collection of diseases? Don't think so. I think um, yeah. I think as long as we're basically focusing on that catch-all term of MUO really because people will see that people will see say either inflammatory CNS disease written down or they'll see MUO, MUA, MUE and knowing that they all mean the same thing basically and um, the things that you hear in terms of say GME and necrotizing diseases all fit under that same umbrella if you really wanted to stretch out which I don't think we quite have time for but inflammatory diseases that affect the CNS in some way could also include things like steroid responsive meningitis arteritis for example which is another sort of more common inflammatory disease that we see in, in neurology in general um, but the reason that we kind of don't cover that here and think of it as separate is it's not really a disease that affects the CNS tissue itself it's just the meninges outlining um, the CNS so they don't tend to present with neurological deficits so they're not really going to be a differential for these cases those are cases that present with just acute onset of, of pain and pyrexia and they have a very neutrophilic CSF tap so not really going to end up getting the two confused but they're probably another that's for another podcast. That's for another podcast. Well, excellent. And so we should wrap it up there. And many thanks for your time today, Joe. And uh, and hopefully we'll get you uh, back on again soon. So uh, thanks for thanks for listening. And don't forget to hit that subscribe um, button on your generic fruit-based device. And that way you don't even worry about missing a podcast. If you can leave us a review, five-star review would be great. Um, I think that I've been noticing there's quite a few veterinary podcasts like coming out recently. Oh, really? You know, like yeah. If you look at you know the, the veterinary... 
newspapers and oh, uh, yeah. certain people are putting out more podcasts so i think we we have to up our game right? yeah, yeah yeah we have to we have to uh, make sure we we you know get get those five star reviews um anyway we'll we'll, uh, we'll play some uh, uh, show notes uh, on the rvc pages so if you just type in rvc clinical podcast into your search engine of choice it should be top of the tree if you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please get in touch. So you can either email dbarfield.rvc.ac.uk or tweet at Don Barfield. Until next time, bye-bye. I, I, I thought you did uh, very well there, Joe. Thank so, you very much. Thank you for your, for your time. I, I was going to say, so um, I, uh, I gave, a, gave a talk in, in, uh, in IVEX in Washington, right? Yeah. And I said, um, I gave up my, my, uh, my Twitter handle. Oh, yeah. At, Don Barfield and I said, you, you know, the last time I gave a talk, it was only uh, I only got like one new new uh, Twitter follower, and the person that was moderating me heckled me and said, "Was that your mum?" No, it was, it was a bit harsh, wasn't it? It's it was a bit harsh, wasn't it? See, the, the last but time it was, we were... yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely was. <laughs> the last time we were on, we we, uh, um, uh, we talked about like Raw, yeah, as 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 moving. We actually both uh, seen Raw now, and yeah. uh, and thought it was it was. Uh, well, I, I thought I thought it was quite good. Yeah. I, I suppose the only thing is because it was mentioned on on another uh, uh, podcast about yeah. um, uh, um, Cameron and Mayer's film review, which was which is quite nice. Yeah. But uh, they, they, Mark Mode asked whether this yeah. was a true depiction of uh, veterinary life. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess uh, it was a particularly extreme version of anything that I've ever encountered at vet school. I guess we see lots of dissections, but probably not so many on sort of unsuspecting other people. Yeah, I, th- I think yeah. that's I think that's fair. I did I did kind of think like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was mad. It was it's, mad film. But it's a it's a good film. It's a good yeah, film. Yeah. Have you have you watched anything uh, good recently? Maybe we could have a uh, Ooh, uh, a, a, a DVD of the week. I would I would. Well, DVD of the week-wise, I want to... I haven't seen yet, but I want to catch up with Rocket Man. Have you seen Rocket Man? Yeah, yeah. Rocket Man is, uh, is, is very good, actually. Um, um, but in terms of what I've, I would plug, um, American Animals. Have you seen this no, film? I haven't. You should I watch haven't. it. It's really good. No, no. Well, I should have done the music first, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Like, shouldn't I? Um, so, uh, no, no, Rocket Man is, is... It's out now. It's very good, and it's out now. It is good, is it? Yeah. Oh, good. It is good. Yeah. Um, it's a proper musical, isn't it? It's not just a... It's a proper musical. It's a, it's a proper musical, and it's got a bit of... Uh, um, it's not necessarily a true depiction of... of uh, um, yeah, the of order his, is... life and his yeah, order. And, order is mixed it's, up. Yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's a very enjoyable release. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you should watch that. Maybe yeah. we can talk about that next time. Yes, sounds good. Thank you very much. Cheers. You can stop recording that, bro. <laughs>